In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As you know, there's been a little bit of uh, muted upheaval in the canonical world about uh, the meaning of the recent uh, motu proprio at Duendam Carisma. Lots of canonical theories about it and discussion. But we know that in some way the core of our spirit, the core of the spirit of Oberstay, the charism will in some way remain untouched. And as we do our recollection today, we can consider that one of those untouched truths turns around the reality of friendship in our life. The friendships that we have with others, the friendship ultimately that we engage with with the people that we meet and that we encounter, those close to us, those in our professional work, but fundamentally all based on that friendship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all surrounded by friends and we deepen in some of those friendships, experience them, we encourage our friends and they in turn encourage us. We receive lots of encouragement from our friends. As you know, the Beatles used to say, I get by with a little help from my friends. This song was written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney and they released it in that very famous album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. In 1967, I've always found that a rather strange uh, title, a Lonely Hearts Club. You know, this is a club for people with lonely hearts. And uh, it, the title, of course, sounds quite sad, as though it were written for lonely people who just get by. And at one point he changes the, the lyrics to, I get high. I get high with a little help from my friends. <laughs> And um, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, I don't know. But uh, it, it is as though those things would soften the blow of loneliness. Well, apparently it was decided that they would let Ringo Starr, the drummer, sing it because, well, they were afraid that uh, if he didn't do a little bit more singing, that his reputation would sink. He would his reputation would just be ruined so they gave him this opportunity to shine and uh, apparently at first the very first words the original introductory words were what would you think if I sang out of tune would you throw ripe tomatoes at me you know, 
And uh, but they said, well, they were afraid that since people did whatever the Beatles said, they they would start receiving rotten tomatoes or, or ripe tomatoes, you know, upon singing that. And in fact, that was probably what would have happened every time Ringo Starr would have sang it live. So they changed it. They were they changed it. Said, what would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? And that's the, that's the that's the line that we all know today. Would you stand out, stand up, and walk out on me? To stand up, to walk out on a friend, must be a very painful experience, because it would be a form of infidelity. Because we know that our friends constitute. A large part of who we really are, because these are imprints or relationships that leave a deep imprint, imprint on us, and they ultimately forge us into who we are. Just as our parents forge us into what we are today as well, and our and our friends have that impact. And so, in our prayer today. It is good to reflect now on the impact that my friends have had on me, the mark they have left, and the mark that we ultimately have also left in others. It's good to reflect on that role of me being a friend to others and me receiving from my friends. Naturally, always we know that our model is our Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed did have friends. That was that was the title of the meditation I was given. Jesus had friends. Jesus had friends, and so we're supposed to draw out of this a conclusion. And he did indeed have friends, even if some of them stood up and walked out on him. In fact. There is one, the only recorded case of disciples turning away from Christ, and that was over some doctrinal issues. The doctrinal question might have been the occasion, but it killed a friendship there too. It was that that famous uh, account in Capernaum in chapter six of Saint John. When the Lord began to speak about the bread of life, and that He was the bread of life, and some of them said, "What do you, you, you mean? You are the bread of life. What do you mean by that? We have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. What?" And these were His friends that were saying that, not just His disciples. How painful it must have been when some of those disciples stopped. Going around with him, after that discourse, they were not simply followers who agreed with his ideas or embraced his ideas; they were his friends. Somehow, there in those disciples, the aspect of friendship was like dominant. They could even have disagreed with some of the things he might have said, but stayed. Stayed as friends, continued being his friends, and indeed things would eventually have fallen into place. 
St. John tells us, aware that his disciples were grumbling about his teaching, about this teaching, Jesus asked them, does this offend you? Then what will happen if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What will happen if you see the Son of Man ascend? It's, a, it's of course, a reference there to his ascension, as though by saying that it might eliminate the perceived scandal of his words, the scandal of what some of them seem to have perceived as a form of cannibalism, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, cutting up his body and eating it, literally, right on the spot. So he said, no, this will be true even when I ascend. And that reference to the ascension to his disciples, but also to his apostles, but ultimately to his friends, is a way of helping them understand better the miracle of the Eucharist. Because we receive the Eucharist, even when our Lord is is ascended in heaven, it is still His body, His real body, His glorified body here present among us. It is as though He was saying, let them not think of His flesh as simply as they see it now. Suppose they were to see this very flesh not merely risen from the dead, but actually ascended into heaven, this glorious flesh. Then they would find it easier to understand. Because there they would realize that the flesh exists not only as they see it now in front of them in its kind of phenomenal or physical mode, but it also exists in a spiritual mode. It also exists, if you could say, in, in heaven. In some way, too, it indicates to us that our friendship with Jesus will continue somehow there in heaven where he has ascended. It's a spiritual mode, I suppose. But it is in that way, too, that he gives us food. And we know that in the very moment of the ascension, they were trying to see him. They were gazing up to heaven to see if they could continue seeing him as he was, as they experienced him on this earth, with his tone of voice, with his, with his eyes, with his smell, with the way they heard his voice. And now they would see him, and, and, and a cloud took him from their sight. They could no longer see him. It was... Uh, a mysterious moment because it was both at the same time, I guess, joyful, but mysteriously sad because he had been somehow taken away. And when those disciples there in Capernaum leave, they are no longer his friends in some way. This pained Jesus, but it pained the other twelve. It pained Peter who stood up and said, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are our friend, he is saying. You're not just a, a guru. You're our friend. Who else is a friend but you to us? You are the greatest of friends. 
You are our real friend. And we now understand that it, it means to be connected to you, to others. Lord, you keep us truly grounded and solid in what is true. You give meaning to all our endeavors. This is basically what St. Peter was saying. You give this meaning because we have known you as a friend. It's beautiful to consider the friendship of Jesus that the apostles must have experienced. And in some way, you know, that explains also why St. Josemaria, our father, used to go into the gospel as another character in the scene. In some way, he was also wanting to, to experience the friendship of Jesus. He was able to say to us what he says to friends. And the apostles shared experiences. They listened to each other deeply. They prayed for each other. They were not just friends in exclusivity. They would not say, well, you're my best friend. Other friends are secondary. Nobody else is my friend. You and I have to have many friends. Perhaps friends of different levels, different, uh, you know, intimacy, I suppose. But we have to swim in that environment of friendship. And indeed, certainly today, because it seems as though there's a kind of an epidemic out there today of loneliness. They say that 30% of millennials feel lonely most of the time. They feel lonely most of the time. Perhaps that's why they're careening towards social media so often. Again, to soften the blow of that loneliness, to feel at least interconnected. And they, feel, they do obviously feel some connection, but it, it is not the same connection that you get in true, in true friendship and exchanges with, a, with another soul there in front of you. And they understand deep down that social media is not the kind of friends that they need. And we know that the, the main changes in our life do not come from singular or dramatic or moving events that God provides or God allows. The changes come rather from a new approach that we give to the lives, to the events, to the French friendships that we have. I've been reading a book by a fellow by the name of Damien Fernandez Pedemonte from Buenos Aires. It's called The Second Conversion. It's a lovely book which he talks all about the account of the disciples of Emmaus and their discussion. They were really their friends trying to make sense of everything that happened. So he goes through the whole book, going through all the, all the exchanges between those two disciples and how our Lord uh, came to them on the road to Emmaus. And uh, he recounts that when he was uh, 15 years old, he says this, when I was 15 years old, I lost a brother who died at the age of 20 in a car accident, along with three other young guys, all of whom went to a, to a, um, a course in in the countryside of Buenos Aires 
for some time of Christian formation. So I don't know if they went for an annual course or what. His, he was 15 years old and his brother was 20 years old. He was killed. He said, my father, 50 years old, had to go and identify the body on the road. My mother never fully recovered from that tragedy. My sisters and I were deeply affected. Over time, I realized that this was a very strong message to me from God, which was followed in a short time by a conversion and a vocation of several members of the family. Because of that event, many converted. Something happened in that family. Compared to that episode, the other dramas of life were minor. My story would have been different if I had not been able to see God behind that event. Charles Journet's book on evil is headed by an epigraph that says, There's a lot of light for those who want to see and a lot of shadows for those who do not want to see. And behind that tragedy, this fellow, this author, Damian Pedemonte, he, he saw a lot of light in the end. He said, so in those days of retreat or end of the year, in which we review the history of our lives, we look for God's interventions there. Change can only really come from God. If not in the facts, yes, in what we are going to do from now on with those facts. He says, for my agnostic friends, the believer's explanation about the contradictions of life do not constitute proof that God exists. According to them, we only appeal to God so as not to fall into despair. I remember myself, when I first uh, converted, I was working with a, a fellow in, in the office in a summer job that I had in the customs department there, downtown Montreal. And uh, it's as though he, he was agnostic or pretty much an atheist. He was always trying to convince me of his atheism or of his agnosticism. I don't even remember which one it was. And then finally he came out with the most stellar proof. He said that my belief was ultimately just a crutch. A crutch, because there are difficult things in life, and so you have to have recourse to spiritual meanings to get, get through life. So he described it like that, a crutch. And he said it in a very uh, sort of disdainful way. And I remember at the time, uh, not being able to know what exactly to do with that. And, uh, and so that kind of reputation, refutation of, of belief, saying that it is just a crutch, well, it doesn't refute anything and it doesn't really propose anything in return. In fact, it just aggravates the situation of difficulties and hardships. It's as though he was saying that the idea of God is just reduced to absurdity. 
and all the bad situations in life, suffering of children or whatever catastrophes you might imagine, they're just absurd. They're just absurd. And and we, in turn, in, in exchange, offer a universe where everything can actually have meaning. For him, this guy, it was a universe of the absurd. Existence is absurd. Love is absurd. Sacrifice is absurd. Art, beauty, it's all absurd. And in some way, even there, he would have included deep and abiding friendships. It's just, it's just a, a crutch that you keep to let yourself go through life And we only accept uh, an explanation of the universe that really gives meaning to everything that we do. Everything and everyone. And for us, the explanation of everything and of everyone is in Christ Jesus, our friend. God and man, who was incarnate, who mingled with humanity for all eternity, And he knew, of course, all the various stages of life. He suffered hunger. He suffered fatigue, thirst. But above all, he experienced the love of his mother, the love of his friends, the attachment of his disciples, and indeed those who decided to leave. He experienced the joy of healing and the conversion of the multitudes. Always with an unwavering trust in God, his his Father. Because, well, he was in constant communion with that intra-Trinitarian life. So we ask you now, Lord, help us to rediscover the great depths of friendship first with you, You are our friend. We talk to you as we do now in this day of recollection and how that is somehow echoed in our friendships here on earth. That we experience the beauty, the grandeur, the fidelity of friendship. As we know, our Lord is not a a distant figure in history. He's not some extraordinary prophet who has passed. He is our friend. And we want to make him friends of our friends too. Lord, help me to reevaluate how good a friend am I? Am I a good friend? Do I have good friends? Do people love me because of my kindness, my warmth, my attention? Do I, in fact, garner friendships? We read uh, in the biography of Guadalupe Ortiz de Landasturi that in the 1940s she used to organize all-night vigils in front of the Blessed Sacrament in in one of the centers there in Madrid. And uh, it's quite impressive because she would stay awake in her office, which was close to the oratory, and she would sit there, she would write letters, awake, with the door open at her desk during this all-night vigil 
in case some young lady or one woman wanted to share some time with her in the silence of the night, would talk about her dreams, her resolutions, her concerns. She would, she would actually set sleep aside in order to offer to everyone her friendship. See, that's the kind of person she was. And indeed, the testimonies about her life show that she had this extraordinary facility for making friends. She had a a unique gift. She had a unique gift for getting along with people. See, she had this kind of attractive warmth. She had lots of human virtues. But they say that the one thing that really stood out with her was her sense of friendship. And as a result, the deep apostolate she realized with so many people. Well, we asked for this gift now. Jesus, give me that gift, a sense of friendship. And I can learn it from you. I can learn how to be a friend, how to be a good listener, how to open horizons, how to be daring in the things I speak to my friends about. Not to be afraid to tell them fundamental truths, sometimes painful truths. Because friendship is always something that is freely uh, bestowed. It is, it is sought, you know, you know, if it is something that we've simply done out of obligation or to obtain a goal of some kind, if it is just done in order to attain some goal, it can't really be authentic. I mean, Guadalupe wasn't foregoing hours of sleep because she felt somehow obliged to do this or nor were people coming to stop by her office because they had to somehow render an account to her she just she was just eager to share things with others I read this quote from St. John Chrysostom great father of the church, he said, if merely being from the same city is enough for many people to become friends, what should our love for one another be like who have the same home, the same table, the same path, the same door, the same life, the same head, the same shepherd and king and master and judge and creator and father. We see this happen between Isidoro and Jose Maria. They were born in the same year. Isidoro was originally from Argentina, of a Spanish family, but then he moved to Logroño, so they became like they were from the same town, the same city. They were friends when they were quite young. But as often happens with friendships, of children, you know, the playground friendships, they have a short shelf life. You know, they, you're friends with on the playground or at school, and then everybody goes their own separate ways. And, you know, they have their purpose. Sometimes we keep those friendships, but often people move on, and then they make new friends 
in their work or in their areas where they live. And I think that's quite normal. But in the case of St. Jose Maria, our father, and, and, and Isidoro, well, they went their separate ways. But they kept in contact through letters. And our father would say, Isidoro, when you come to Madrid, I want to talk to you about something. It's important. I have something very interesting to tell you. And eventually, that's what happened. Isidoro did go to Madrid. They reconnected. And we can imagine the horizons that our father opened to Isidoro lead, led him to give his life for that, for that new project that our father had just discovered. And the root of that and the root of those letters were, was their friendship. We have to see maybe which friendships do I have to revive, do I have to um, bolster, or which new friendships could I, um, could I gain, could I work on, or how can I just be a better friend, a better listener in my life. We ask this of our Blessed Mother. She had St. Elizabeth, uh, she went to, to help, she ran there in the visitation, in the mystery of the visitation. It's also, in some ways, the mystery of mutual support and friendship. We ask her to intercede for us so that that, that foundational friendship we, that we have with Jesus somehow uh, you know, gets s sort of splayed out throughout our life and enriches us enriches those around us so that we can come close to the Lord face to face, our friend. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.